This is Tracy Guy Decker, and you're listening to Deep Thoughts About Stupid Shit. Because pop culture is still culture. And shouldn't you know what's in your head? Today, my sister, Emily Guy Birkin, and I will be sharing our deep thoughts about the TV show Lucifer. Let's dive in. Have you ever had something you love dismissed because it's just pop culture? What others might deem stupid shit, you know matters. You know it's worth talking and thinking about. And so do we. So come over, think with us as we delve into our deep thoughts about stupid shit. This show is a labor of love, but that doesn't make it free to produce. If you enjoy it even half as much as we do, please consider helping to keep us overthinking. You can support us at our Patreon. There's a link in the show notes or leave a positive review so others can find us. And of course, share the show with your people. All right, Em. So we're not going to do the what do you know? Because listeners, if you don't already know, this is actually our second podcast together as sisters. Our first is a deep dive episode by episode of Lucifer. (laughs) So if you really want to know more about how we got into Lucifer and what we know about it, if you are in fact a Lucy fan, please, please rewatch with us. The show is called Lightbringers. We will link to it in the show notes here. And we have a lot of fun with it. We've been doing, it's actually we've been recording for like two years now, I think. Um, so, uh, even though we only started releasing as a podcast a couple months ago, the, the recordings are old anyway. Anyway. So as two big fat Lucy fans, (laughs) we were supposed to be at a heaven and hell convention right now, as we speak, in Schaumburg, Illinois, of all places. Um, Beautiful, and- sunny Schaumburg, Illinois. <laughs> yeah, so we were supposed to be in Schaumburg for, for this convention, but, you know, COVID. Uh, so we are both feeling better. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not in the same place, but somehow we both of our families got hit at the same time. So boo his COVID. Uh, boo, it is boo, the world we yes. live in. Yes. Our original plan was this was going to be kind of like an audience interactive episode. We were going to be interviewing our fellow convention goers. And we were also going to like, I had daydreams of D.B. Woodside and Rachel Harris and Lauren German giving us a little sound bite. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So we were going to ask other convention goers about what big ideas they took away from Lucifer and uh, maybe how they discovered the show and what it means to them. And how it has, if and how it has changed their thinking or, mm-hmm. you know, how it shows the up they in, look at in the their world. everyday lives. Yeah. Yeah. But alas, it's just us. So let's, let's get into it. Do you want to do the kind of recap of the show for folks? Would you like me to start that? How do you want to do that? Well, since I found the show first, I'll go ahead and do the recap. I discovered the show once it was on Netflix. They uh, did a very good job of making sure that they put Tom Ellis in all his six foot four gorgeousness front and center. (laughs) Very little clothing. Very little clothing. We all know Emily is a sucker for a handsome man. So predictable. (laughs) So In the show Lucifer, which is based loosely on the comic books that are a subshoot, like are already already based off of the Sandman comic books that were Neil Gaiman. And we all know how much Tracy loves Neil Gaiman. Oh, I Um, love Neil Gaiman. So in the show, 
Lucifer has, and this is also true in the comic book, um, he has gotten tired of running hell. And so he decides to take a vacation in Los Angeles. At the beginning of the show, which is set in 2016, which is when it came out, he has been in Los Angeles for five years. He has a piano bar called Lux. He brought his demon companion, Mazikeen, with him. His angelic brother, Amenadiel, is very angry at him and is consistently trying to get him to return to hell because without Lucifer at the helm, Amenadiel has to kind of keep an eye on things and he hates going to hell. In the pilot episode, Lucifer has one of his former employees who would sing while he played piano come back to the bar to ask him about the favor that she got because Lucifer gives favors in the hopes of getting a favor back in return in the future. So he had done her a favor to get her music career to take off, which it did. She is a superstar. However, she is also a big old mess with really bad decisions about dating, um, substance abuse, paparazzi photos that are really inappropriate, things like that. And so she asks him, like, did I sell my soul to the devil? And uh, he's like, no, what would I do with your soul? And okay, you know, why is everything bad? And he's like, look, I'm going to call in my favor and it's for you to get your life together. That is what you need to do as, as the favor to me. So he clearly has a great deal of affection for Delilah. As they're leaving, someone shoots them both, like boom, 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 where Delilah is gone. He is shot several times, wakes up immediately because he's immortal. And the police officer who was assigned, the detective who was assigned to the case is Chloe Decker, played by Lauren German, who he immediately flirts with and she is having none of it. He ends up working with her to try to solve this murder case. And from there, because he seems to have zero effect on her, whereas anyone who is attracted to men tend to be putty in his hands. So he is really weirded out by the fact that she has he has no effect on her. And he kind of becomes a little bit obsessed with her. In the process of investigating Delilah's death, they meet Delilah's therapist, Linda Martin, played by Rachel Harris, who is very insightful and like can recognize the, uh, Lucifer's insecurities. So he decides to start seeing her for a little help with his mental health. And then things continue along, along there. That's, that's the setup. Through a series of events that are somewhat reasonable and somewhat not, he ends up becoming um, the civilian consultant. So he becomes Chloe Decker's partner. And over the next six seasons, he quickly falls in love with her, although he does not realize it. And over time, she falls in love with him. There is a lot of celestial weirdness going on too, with angels coming from, from heaven to threaten Chloe, with the divine goddess who is the parent, the mother of all of the angels coming during one season, with God actually showing up during one season. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. I think one thing, one piece that is important that you hadn't gotten to yet is that in the beginning... And for most of the characters, Lucifer, Lucifer never says he is other than he is. He all he yes. uses the name Lucifer Morningstar. He says, I'm the devil. And so, of course, people think he's delusional or they like one character, Ella, thinks he's a character actor who he's just never actor. breaks yeah. never breaks character. Uh, method actor, thank you, who never breaks character. So he always tells the truth. That's another 
quirk of this character. He always tells the truth. He sometimes withholds the truth, but he doesn't mm-hmm. actually lie. Mm-hmm. And so he's always straightforward about being being the devil and no one believes him. Now, at some point in season, at the end of season three, so in season four, uh, Chloe mm-hmm. knows that he that that it's true that it's all real, and so she knows for the final three of the six seasons, yes. um, and then a couple of other characters do eventually learn the truth as well. So that's an important piece where we get some dramatic irony, which regular listeners know is something that I love. So from the beginning, we have dramatic irony where we know that he's really is in fact the devil, but none of the other characters, uh, none of the other human characters know that, at least in the beginning. I'd actually like to say one of the things I find really fun and kind of delicious is thinking through what Chloe must think of him during those yeah. first three seasons, because like she knows he doesn't lie. Right. Like she knows it's an important part of who he is. And yet she also knows that he can't possibly be what he says he is. So, so she like, must think he believes that he is. Yes. The thinking through how she handles that cognitive dissonance, I and, find really interesting and, and yeah, fascinating. And how she could actually like well, fall and she in love with she, that. She has feelings for him. Yeah. Like in the first season, she's like, he's a weirdo. I mean, like he's an attractive weirdo. Yeah. Charming. Charming and attractive, but he's a weirdo and like, I'm going to roll my eyes. But to get to, it's even in in the second season, they kind of come closer together during that second season, all while she's still being like, this is really weird. Yeah. Yeah. He's delusional. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So by the time we get to the sixth season, like a lot of hijinks ensue. I mean, like mm-hmm. we couldn't possibly go through all all of it and keep this to under an hour, which we try to it's, do. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. It becomes soap opera y in a, in a way. Yeah, some of it. Yeah, it's bizarre. I mean, I enjoyed every second of it, but it's oh, bizarre. Yeah, I, I'm not saying that in a derogatory way. Just in yeah. the like, if we tried to sum it up, you'd be like. What happened now? Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Um, he's but his I own do- twin, <laughs> right, right, right. And he's gonna be God. What the time travel is involved somehow? <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, listeners, if you're not familiar with Lucifer, everything that we have just said is a plot point. <laughs> yeah, but I do think it's important to note that the structure of the show, right? So it mm-hmm. is a combination police procedural with a case of the week and mm-hmm. also this kind of overarching family drama where the family happens to be like God and the angels. And there's some really interesting philosophical points in all of that and also some some societal things that come up. Like when we were recording Lightbringers initially, and we talked about the fact that it is a police procedural, and we realized that we, both literally me and Emily, but also we, the broader like American culture, have been so conditioned to expect and accept police procedurals as the vehicle on which we tell stories that we have become completely immune to what's sort of the assumptions that are behind that, which Emily introduced me to the term copaganda. And that's exactly what this is in some ways, like sort of setting up that the cops are the good guys and that this chassis on which we build so much television entertainment is a choice. It's not natural. And that was something that like, I was almost embarrassed that I was so, 
I had so completely internalized that idea that procedurals is kind of the natural storytelling mechanism, especially for television. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that I, I also want to like name up front that this show, I'm not sure what the right metaphor is. I started to say falls prey to, but that's not the right word because I don't, that implies a passivity to the showrunners that I, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't want to excuse them. I mean, I love them. So I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not, this is not a like accusatory, but just, I just want to like hold accountable. Like police procedural was a choice. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, mm -hmm. and it did not come from the comic book, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, that is not at all in the comic book. Gaiman did not write a police procedural, right? There's no so, Chloe Decker um, right. in, the, in the comic book. So that was a, that was a choice and it brought a whole bunch of baggage with it as choices mm -hmm. do. So that was just something I wanted to name up front that I think the showrunners grapple with over the six seasons. Yes. And I will say it is entirely possible that Fox would not have greenlit this show unless it was attached to something like, well, we know procedurals will sell. Yep. Um, because I have read that there were points where they were like, okay, we want to do a little more with the celestial stuff here. And the Fox executives were like, no, 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 no stick to the procedural. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you're right. You're absolutely right. In fact, one so, of the, one of the best episodes in the entire run, uh, priest walks into a bar mm -hmm. is, I mean, it's just beautiful television because it is completely character driven. There is a case mm -hmm. of the week, but the mm -hmm. characters are what shine through and mm -hmm. the interviews from the showrunners and others who helped make that they had to fight for that because the execs yeah. wanted more gritty police procedural. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're right. You're right. So, and there's a, a YouTuber that I like, uh, his YouTube channel is called believe it or not. Uh, he talks about evangelical Christianity and, and that sort of thing. I don't remember how it came up, but he mentions, cause he, he, he's very immersed in pop culture and he mentioned how he has friends who love the show Lucifer and he couldn't get into it. And for him, it was not that he had trouble swallowing the idea that Lucifer, you know, came to Los Angeles for, for a vacation and owned a piano bar and has his angelic brother would visit and could stop time. His problem was the idea that the cops are the good guys in LA. Yeah. And it was one of those, when he said that, I was just like, that is really, I feel like in some ways damning of me in that I never had a problem with it. Like I noticed on rewatch, there is a line that I wonder if Joe and LD, who are the showrunners, had to fight to get in where when Chloe Decker is interviewing Lucifer right after Delilah's death, he says to her, is your corrupt little organization actually going to do anything about this? Or are you just going to sweep it under the rug? And I've wondered if that was, if they had to push to get that line in, but I didn't even really like, I just kind of elided over it. Mm-hmm when watching it the first time and just like, absolutely. Yeah. Chloe's the good guy. The cops yeah. are the good guys. And even, I mean, to be fair, a corrupt cop is, is one of the main characters in the first season. Actually, but yeah. there's three, there's three corrupt cops yeah. in the first season. And so there is some, some grappling with that, but there is still this sense of like, we're fighting for what's right. We're bringing yeah. justice and, and protecting and serving. And that is, as you say, it's worrisome in part because that, that has to do with how we have been immersed in propaganda from babyhood. In 2020, after George Floyd's murder, 
I had to take a hard look at my love for a lot of different fiction. Specifically, I could not watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine anymore. I had really loved that show. And I just, I honestly couldn't watch it. As much as I really enjoyed all the actors, I thought they did a really good job. They had like, it's Mike Schur, who I love, is the showrunner. He did The Good Place and Parks and Rec. I love workplace comedies. Um, I have an enormous crush on Andy Samberg. I mean, all kinds of good stuff. But I just, I couldn't, I couldn't watch it anymore. I struggled a little bit with Lucifer as well, although I felt like I had more plausible deniability because I'm like, I'm in it for the Celestials. You know? <laughs> well, also after that, um, D.B. Woodside, who plays uh, Amenadiel, I mean, he's who, who is a black actor. Yeah, and he's he's been on record as saying he's he really pushed the showrunners to kind of grapple with the role mm-hmm. of police, especially around race, and they they do they do in that in that final season. Well, and even even in the was that season four even before I that think? yeah with Caleb, but both of those. Post Fox. It was once uh, because yeah. the show was on Fox for the first three seasons. It got canceled and there was a fan led campaign to save, save Lucifer. Hashtag save Lucifer. Hashtag save Lucifer. And so they were able to do that. Um, Netflix picked it up. So the final three seasons were done on Netflix and with the Produced by additional skin yeah. <laughs> language. And there's a lot more skin. I saw Tom, someone Tom say this. Naked uh, ass shows up a lot. Yeah. 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 I saw someone say that Tom Ellis's ass is the MVP of uh, season four. <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. They were like, censors we're on away. Netflix. Let's go Tom's, for it. Tom's ass will play. Yeah. <laughs> and we are. I might cut that out. <laughs> Do not. Yeah. When I tell people about this show, I lead with the squeeing over how absolutely gorgeous, not just Tom Ellis, but the whole cast is. The I whole mean, cast is really gorgeous. I mean, it's beautiful. Really. They're all really remarkably gorgeous from, you yeah. know, like Trisha Helfer, who plays uh, Charlotte Richards and the goddess and D.B. Woodside is gorgeous. And Laura, mm-hmm. Lauren German is gorgeous. And Rachel Harris is gorgeous. And Leslie Ann Brandt, who plays mm-hmm. Mazikeen, May is the demon right She's hand. Amazing. I mean, the woman was carved by a classical artist. She's just, mm-hmm. she's just so gorgeous. I'm sure I'm forgetting. Oh, I mean, Amy Kevin Garcia. Alejandro and Amy Garcia. Kevin Alejandro. Yeah. They're, they're all just really, really good looking and good actors too. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's an ensemble cast that it's rare that I like every single person, like every single yeah. character. And like, it's not that you need to, it's not that you need to like every, but Tracy and I, just before we started uh, recording, we were talking about friends because it's just this morning we learned that Matthew Perry who played Chandler Bing died. And I was saying he was always my favorite friend. As an adult watching, I can now see the incredible amount of comedic timing and ability that David Schwimmer brought to the role of Ross, but I could not stand Ross. Yeah. Like he's, he's just... I, I really did not like that character. And I feel I, I feel bad for David Schwimmer that that's who he's known as because I think he's a mensch. In any case, the way that these characters are written, they have conflict and they are not perfect characters and they do struggle with, with any number of things. And they are do things that I disagree with or think are wrong or wish they wouldn't do. And yet they are all still people I root for. Yeah. Even when they do something egregious, like Kevin Alejandro's character, Dan Espinoza, he is uh, Chloe's ex-husband and he's a corrupt cop. 
And I never would have thought I could forgive a corrupt cop, but he was one of my favorite characters in some ways. There, mm-hmm. there were points in the first season where I wanted him and Chloe to get back together, mm. even though I was in it for Tom Ellis and, and like he really loved Chloe and I wanted them together, but I could really see like they have an incredible bond and they have a child together and, you know, <laughs> he is a good person and he loves her and all of that. So in any case... I lead with that, but I actually recently told my therapist that I feel like Lucifer is one of the best shows I've ever seen or, or, or any kind of media I've seen that grapples with mental health and provides like metaphors for mental health, as well as direct description and understanding of mental health, because we do have the character of Linda played by Rachel Harris, who is a therapist. Now it ends up being, because this is how shows go, she ends up being everybody's therapist. (laughs) First of all, like, no, you don't go drinking (laughs) with your therapy clients. And, you know, like clearly there's got to be other therapists in Los Angeles. She would refer people, (laughs) but in any case, but they, they do have her like kind of talk people through their traumas in ways that I think is very important for the audience to see. And there's also just these incredible metaphors. I've talked to you about this before in Lightbringers, and I just want to highlight it again. In the second season, Lucifer is always self-loathing, but he is especially disgusted and horrified by himself because he killed one of his angelic brothers because it was either kill Uriel or Uriel would kill Chloe and destroy their mother, the goddess. And so though he didn't exactly have a choice, he feels as anyone would feel in, in destroying your sibling. And so he lashes out. He's trying to get people to hurt him because he feels like he deserves to be punished. And he ends up finally talking to Linda about it. And he's explaining the whole thing. Like, cause he tells Linda, like, I'm Lucifer banished to hell. And she takes it as a metaphor. And so he's explaining the whole thing about how he killed Uriel using Azrael's blade and blah, 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 blah. And she says, no, I'm not doing this anymore. Stop with the metaphor. Tell me what's really happening. Show me who you are. And he says, are you sure? And she was like, yes, we cannot move forward without you doing this. And so he very gently shows his devil face, which you see on occasion. It's horrifying. It's burned. It's red and ugly and bald. And it's just this lovely moment. They're in her office at night. The way that the cinematographer handled it, they have lights going past as if there are cars driving past. And so there's lights going over his face and you just see his face and like the back of her head. And then he comes back to his his Tom Ellis face and he gives this little like, not quite a smile, like, hey, are, are we okay? Kind of look. And Linda is not. She is catatonic basically. And that moment reminded me so much of what people who deal with serious mental health crises feel like when finally showing their true face to someone they trust. And it actually, it's devastating because she can't handle it. And the thing is, that is also probably going to be the case 
for a lot of people who do show their true selves, they might show it to a friend who can't handle it. And so he just very quietly gets up and leaves. And it's heartbreaking, but it makes me feel like I better understand what it's like to be in that situation, to be, you know, suicidal or to, to be trans or, you know, anything that someone might find difficult to take and the fear. Yeah. I think I want to even broaden it even further because I think part of the heartbreak and the resonance of that moment is that anything about which one has taken on a posture of self-loathing, anything about which one has sort of internalized that it's not okay, that if they, if they, if that other person knew this about me, that they would reject me, which it, it could be absolutely anything. I think, mm-hmm. I think it is completely human to have had a moment like that, whether it was something that society told us or something that we just had internalized. It could be something that when said out loud, very few people would think should need to mm-hmm. be hidden. But so many of us walk through thinking like, I'm a fraud. And mm-hmm. if they knew, they wouldn't like me anymore. It reminded me of, um, after Robin Williams's death, I remember reading something from a comedian saying that one of the difficult things of being a comedian is that people expect you to be funny. And so if you drop that mask and you're not funny, like that's when it's very clear that the comedian trusts you, like that if you're the audience. And if you say like, what happened to the fun guy? They're going to put that mask right back up again and make jokes. And so that's that's that sort of thing. Like if they knew the real yeah. me, that I'm sad, that I'm self-loathing, that's, you know, yeah, um, whatever it is, I'm not whatever funny it is. all the time. That moment, yeah, I, I think the, the resonance and the heartbreak and the strength of the actor too. I mean, you point out that he, the, the little smile that's like, like hopeful and and fearful mm-hmm. all at the same mm-hmm. time. And then the very quiet, like, of course I should have known as he mm-hmm. leaves the office. Yeah, How do you make your face do that? Like on I don't purpose. Know. Not an actor, but I don't know how. How do you have that kind of control over your face muscles? Yeah. Yeah. So so that's one relatively early moment in the six series mm-hmm. of uh six seasons, excuse me, of sort of seeing a mental health metaphor. But it's not the only. Do you mm-hmm. wanna share others? The other one that really stuck with me because it made me mad. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, was so there's Ella, Ella Lopez, who she doesn't join the cast until season two. She is the um, she's like the forensics expert, forensics expert, and she is this like ray of sunshine. She hugs everyone, she always wears these funny, cute, adorable t shirts. She is tiny and adorable. She's just always like just very, very chatty and, and joyful and cheerful. And there are comments throughout the series where she says that there's darkness inside her. And in the fifth season, she ends up, this is another one where it's going to sound like a soap opera. She ends up dating a guy who turns out to be a serial killer. And that really shakes her for good reason. And she is like, there's something wrong with me because he saw himself as like me because I have this darkness inside. And she ends up seeing Linda because Linda's the only therapist in Los Angeles. And she she describes what this inner darkness is. And what she describes is very clearly intrusive thoughts. 
like she's talking about, she was going for a run or something. She saw a guy on his phone, um, walking, not paying attention. It was like, he was about to walk into traffic and she saw it happen in front of her that, you know, he got hit and like blood everywhere and blah, 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 blah. And then, um, she didn't do anything. And then it was too late. And, and Linda's like, oh, did he get hit? And she's like, no, no, no. He looked up and he stopped. But I had that thought and I didn't do anything. And my frustration with that episode, which otherwise handles her intrusive thoughts very well, because she ends up talking to, to God, as played by Dennis Haysbert, who makes it clear to her that the darkness is not who she is, that that is you know, something that is within her, but that is also because of how much brightness she has. You know, The darker the darkness, the brighter the light. But I was very frustrated by it because it was clearly, the, clearly intrusive thoughts. I have had intrusive thoughts my entire life. I did not know what they were until I was in my 30s. And it would have given me a lot of comfort and made me feel a lot better about myself and my thought processes to know that there was a term for it and that it happens and that it's no different from, you know, clouds moving across the sky or another metaphor I've seen is like intrusive thoughts are like goldfish in a pond. You're the pond. The goldfish just go by. That was a moment where they very easily could have had Linda say, that sounds like intrusive thoughts. And those are common. And I know it's because they wanted the Ella character to have the moment with God and get that reassurance that way. But they very easily could have had her say, like, those are intrusive thoughts. And Ella goes, like, yeah, but mine are worse. And exceptionalize herself and say, like, no, 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 that might be other people, but I'm bad. And then still have that moment with God. Considering how well they handle so many other things. So the, the moment that I talked about earlier, there's also a moment in season four where Lucifer has a breakthrough realizing like he blames everyone for his problems, but really it's all self-loathing. There is quite a bit with um, Mazikeen is best friends with Linda and how Linda talks to, to Maze about like self-worth comes from within bitches <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and helping her become her own person rather than Lucifer's minion, which is what she was created to be. So there's so many moments. There's also just- a lot, there's a lot of work that multiple characters do about sort of conflict and strife with families of origin. Mm, yes. Like a lot. Yes. There are some really lovely things that we see. So Amenadiel is kind of an antagonist in the first season, but even in the first season, there there are these lovely moments between him and Lucifer showing their long history together as brothers. And he becomes, you know, very much a protagonist over time. And seeing the way that their shared childhood, I don't know if you can call it that since their history, <laughs> born fully formed history, caused trauma in them both. And seeing even Lucifer's growth when he finally gets the recognition from his father, from God, that he's proud, that God is proud of Lucifer. His first thought, Lucifer's first thought is like, I think Amenadiel should hear this too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so there, there's a lot there in terms of recognizing the trauma of childhood. Lucifer was the favored son until he rebelled, you know, according to the background within the show. Um, but yeah. Amenadiel was, uh, was like, like the oldest child, follow the rules, do what my parents want and, you know, like get the gold star and how that causes trauma as well. It's all, I think it gives people a lot of 
ways in, there's a lot of paths into self-knowledge from watching the show that I find lovely and, and uh, so hopeful. Yeah. So we have been recording Lightbringers since 2021. We have very much slowed down in our, our recording because like when we first started, we're like, yay, every week we get to watch two episodes and talk to our sister. Blah, blah, blah. We we're so excited. And uh, now we're in season six and both of us are like, I haven't watched yet. Have you? All right, let's reschedule. It's <laughs> um, true. And it's, there's a couple, like season six is no one's favorite season. As far as I know, I mean, in the fandom, there's a lot of people who are really mad about season six. The way that it ended, I honestly, I don't have an issue with the way that it ended because I really do get into like the kind of logistics and practicality of an immortal being and a human woman. And there's, there's no happy ending where they're together when she dies. Yeah. She's in her (laughs) thirties and you know, he looks like he's in his thirties old. Yeah. So like, I was totally fine with them being separated for the duration of her life and then being together forever after her death. And in fact, that was like the happiest, happy ending I think that we could get, but it's still, there, there were quite a few things where it just, just didn't sit quite the way I wanted it to. One thing that really stuck with me about the final season that I really liked and felt was a wonderful theme and message to end on is the show ends with Lucifer realizing that his job, instead of being the punisher of hell, being the king of of torment, is to help the damned souls overcome the guilt that has put them in hell overcome the trauma that they've been carrying so that they can then go to heaven because by becoming he, better people. I think that's an by becoming better it's people. It's not just yes. about like don't not feeling guilty about the no past harms caused, but rather mm-hmm. becoming better people. Becoming better the people beings. that they yes, yes. That they had the potential um, to be. And Lucifer accidentally helped two different characters do that and then realized like he could do that. And so he basically creates a therapy room like the one that Linda has in hell. And he works with the souls, not one-on-one because there's too many, but three at a time at least. (laughs) So that is where he ends. Chloe had left the LAPD because she wanted to support Lucifer in becoming God. Again, this sounds like a soap opera, but, and she learns in a like in a way that is like how did you first how is it you just learned this but she learns of the overwhelming racism like throughout the LAPD there's a an episode starring Marin Dungi Dungi I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name she's a an actress who I love who's been in a bunch of different things including Better Off Ted and she she had a a, a role in Brooklyn Nine Nine oh my God we should we should record an episode about Better Off Ted we have to record an episode about Better <laughs> Off Ted. Um, but, uh, so she is a beat cop who wanted to be a detective. She's a black woman and a menadiel who has joined the force is seeing firsthand how much horrible racism there is. And he asks Marin Dungy's character, why do you do this? And she's like, well, cause if I don't, there's no one here to keep an eye on this. And so Chloe learns about this. She's trying to decide like, should I come back to the LAPD? What if that's going to be bad for my kids? And Amenadiel's like, well, 
I don't have that choice. And Marindungi's character doesn't have that choice. And so it becomes clear that meaningful work, uh, and Chloe is also completely lost without a job. She's very bored. She's, she's kind of loses herself a little bit. So the, the meaningful work, and it's more than just the work that she had been doing solving crime, but the meaningful work of trying to improve a situation that is unacceptable is so important. I really appreciate it because I don't know, how often do we get that message? The, yeah. the, the importance of finding the work that you are good at and can do and that will help. Yeah. Is yeah. There's wonderful. something about purpose, I think, in the way that mm -hmm. it's presented as well, but it's not, um, the way that the show presents it, it's not sort of grandiose. I mean, the, the whole point is that like the small acts that make a difference I mean, Chloe becoming lieutenant is is meant is is actually relatively grandiose. But some of the points that are made, specifically between Amenadiel and Linda, mm -hmm. are you know who's gotten used to being the therapist for angels, mm -hmm. um, and and now is feeling a little like let down by just ordinary human mm -hmm. psychotherapy problems. Um, and Amenadiel like really pushes back on that. And I think the, the kind of undercurrent of that season for us in terms of, you know, what you have labeled meaningful work. Like I want to nuance the word work because it's not mm -hmm. even necessarily like labor for compensation. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's about impact mm -hmm. and the fact that even seemingly small acts can have much more important impact to the folks whom they affect. Mm -hmm. um, and that feels like a really important message that you're right. We, I mean, we get it, but we don't like, we get it, but we don't get it. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like it's sort of societally, it'll be given with one hand and taken away with the other yeah. as we're sort of told like, yeah, you know, it's a wonderful life. Everything you touch makes a difference. But then also like if you're not a charismatic leader at the front of some big, huge well, impact, or, like you don't actually Or even if, if you're not productive enough and you're not completing all your to-do lists and, oh, you know, for sure. like- the you know, if you're not waking up at 4.30 and doing hot yoga, like right. what are you even doing with your life? Yeah. And to that point, like the first person that Lucifer helps get from hell to heaven is Lee, Mr. Set Out Bitch, who is a minor character we see at the very beginning of season two, three, four, and then five. And then again, at the end of season five, beginning of season five, he is dead and in hell. And Lucifer basically ends up trying to help solve his murder within hell. And by doing so, it is little, I mean, it's a big thing. I mean, like to have like the ruler of hell actually, you know, taking you around, <laughs> but it's a relatively little thing because where they end up is standing outside of his parents' house, Lee's parents' house, where his sister is having a baby shower. Baby shower. That's right. It was the last time his whole family was together because his parents um, died. I think his mom first um, after that. And he wouldn't go in because he was the family screw up. And he knew if he went in, he was just going to let them down again. And so that was like the moment that really hurt him in a way that's, that set him on this path that led him to go to, to dying and going to hell. Even though we learn in that episode, just how much his sister loved him and him all that time. And so like, it is a relatively little thing, you know, to talk through that moment, because that's the sort of thing where like, I have no doubt that, you know, if Lee were a real person, he wasn't thinking about that. Like, it wasn't like, 
you know, like that's the one thing that's wrong in my life. That's the thing that I need to fix. But by like getting to like, this is the little moment and we're doing this little thing, which is talking through your grief over not being there when your whole family was together for the last time. I mean, it's also significant that Lee is a petty criminal, right? And so I think that it's also significant that the person who is the object of this attention is not the charismatic, perfect leader. Mm -hmm. He's very much an, uh, an everyman. Yes. Yeah. And the devotion between him and his sister Mm. is so real and yet so common, if you know what I mean. Like it's, you know, everyone has that kind of devotion somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, There's someone that they feel that way about and that person feels that way about them. And uh, I'm going to get teary eyed. (laughs) I I, like for, he's, he's kind of a gag character, Lee is, but he really tugs at your heartstrings. He becomes this like such an important character to Lucifer and to the audience, even though he is a petty criminal who is making terrible decisions and who is hurting the people who love him best, but only because he doesn't know how else to be. Yeah. So the last theme from Lucifer that I wanted to kind of articulate is the importance of it's a constellation. It's it's redemption. And that mm-hmm. that's definitely a big part of it. I mean, from the from the very beginning, I think that was where we were going with this, right? Like if the devil can be redeemed, then surely there's hope for those of us who are mere mortals. I think that's at the core of why this show has appeal. But I think part of the greater nuance that gets into the what you just named about meaningful work, spe- and specifically the way Lucifer finds it at the end mm-hmm. of times, is pushing back against the binary, right? Like yeah. God, the devil, heaven, hell, good, bad. That mm-hmm. binary is constantly reasserting itself and pushing itself on Lucifer and telling him that he's bad, which is part of the whole self-loathing. Mm-hmm. And when taken together all six seasons, the show Lucifer fundamentally rejects that binary. Yeah. It, ju- it just says, no, it's not true. There are shades of gray. Um, and more than that, it's not fixed. Mm-hmm. Bad choices are bad choices and new ones can be made, right? People can grow. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that message, especially since we started here talking about mental health, that that message feels essential and important, but also even just like changing the way we think and pushing back against mm-hmm. either or and binary thinking also feels like mm-hmm. deeply, deeply important. And the show over and over again does that for us, right? From have, from season one, seeing Amenadiel, the angel, as the antagonist mm-hmm. through when we get the <laughs> the twin, <laughs> Michael, who is an archangel, who's a, a villain in this show. I mean, he is a total villain. And his mm-hmm. superpower is to sense people's fears. And he's mm-hmm. meant to be of the Silver City. So I think the showrunners were like, pushing on this idea of the binary is mm-hmm. false well, and insufficient to to describe reality. I also think that it's important in that sixth season, we see redemption for two kind of irredeemable criminals. 
So first is Jimmy Barnes, who is the person who killed Delilah in the pilot. And he's pretty awful. Like we, we see him in the pilot. We see him, I think once, maybe twice more in season one, where he's kind of gone a little bit nuts because he saw Lucifer's real face or Lucifer's devil face rather. And things have gone badly for him, uh, but he's, he's not seen as a He is not a sympathetic character, that's for sure. Not a sympathetic character at all. And we see an episode in Yabba Dabba Doomy in season six where um, he has died. And so Lucifer goes to hell and kind of sees where his origin story is, why Jimmy Barnes became who he was as an adult. And he's able to feel sympathy and empathy for him. So there's that character. And then- the very final scene of the show, Lucifer is in session with three souls. There's one, a woman who we've never seen before. There's Reese, who is a character we saw in one one episode, who is Linda's ex-husband, um, who is sympathetic, but really stuck in his ways in a way that is hurt that hurts the people he loves best, and so does need the help to to become the person who can be in heaven. And then there's Vincent Lamech who was the person who murdered Dan and who it's very difficult. Yeah. He was a mercenary and just completely unrepentant and uh, had no regard for human life whatsoever. Yeah. And he kidnapped Rory too, didn't he? Was that that? Yes. So I think it's very significant that he is on the couch as well. But you know who's not is Malcolm from the first season. Malcolm was the overrunning villain, human villain in season one. And he is a psychopath. There is something seriously wrong with him. And one of the things that people talk about about the show is like, they say, they say that there are no locks on the doors in hell and it's your guilt that keeps you in hell. And they're like, well, what about people who don't feel guilt? And like, we do see sometimes there are some doors that are chained. Presumably that's where Hitler is. Presumably that's where like the people who are not capable of feeling guilt. And, you know, I have no doubt that if they get to the point where Lucifer has talked to everyone who is capable of feeling guilt and and help them, he'll probably start to see if there's anything he can do to help the Malcolms of the world. Right. But they're 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 back burner. So like even a mercenary, and we know uh because we know a little bit about Lamech because he was being possessed by Dan's ghost when Dan <laughs> so proper, y'all. <laughs> no, it's so sounds proper. ridiculous. Uh when Dan goes up to it heaven makes sense. and don't overthink yeah. it. <laughs> don't overthink it. <laughs> When Dan goes to heaven and Lamech says, I want that. I saw that. I want it. And so we see that there is something there in him that is capable of recognizing goodness and recognizing grace. And so, you know, even though it will be a very long time before he is able to overcome the issues in himself that keep him chained to hell and make him a better person who can ascend to heaven... It is possible, even for a mercenary who has no regard for human life like Lamech, even if it's not possible for a psychopath like Malcolm. We've been talking for a long time. And as we know, we could talk a lot longer about Lucifer because we have done. We didn't even get into some of the things that we always get into, right? Like, yes, it passes the Bechdel test as a Mm -hmm. series. There are probably episodes where it doesn't, individual Mm -hmm. episodes that don't pass the Bechdel test. Race, at least in the beginning, is like, eh, Eh. not not so great. 
relatively diverse, relatively diverse ensemble cast. It um, is. And, um, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, he becomes a protagonist, but like D.B. Woodside, who's this big, beautiful black actor, plays an antagonist in the beginning, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. there are many times where we noted where like the the villain, like they were like, oh, like put a black actor in there. Even if it was more than once when when the character name was written to to sort of read as um, Ashkenazi Jewish, there would be mm-hmm. a black actor in that role, which absolutely there are black Ashkenazi Jews. <laughs> Just want to say that out loud. And also, I'm not sure that that's what the <laughs> casting folks were going for when they cast you know, the, a, a black guy is Ryan Goldberg. Um, they were just mm-hmm. like, oh wait, there aren't enough black people on the screen. And then it ends up being like a schmuck who mm-hmm. is a, a murderer. So mm-hmm. like I, greater care could have been taken around race uh, and casting and writing from the mm-hmm. beginning. It gets better. It gets better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in some ways, Chloe Decker is a caricature, at least in the beginning. And then- they're not sure who she is. You know, there are times when we, as we were rewatching where we were like, what, why was she doing that? Like that is not in character. So, you know, and I, I think part of that is there absolutely were women in the writer's room. And also it was just like, oh, right. This isn't just, she's not just a plot device. She's a character. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, we didn't even get into all of those things. We went with the things that felt like bigger, deeper, more important. But folks, if you're Lucy fans and you want to hear more about that, if you want to hear me geek out about some of the biblical stuff. Oh, Tracy does some really great geeking out. Really geek out. In fact, I actually have to put in, I have to record a caveat because I always get confused about Eve's name in Hebrew and I got it wrong when we recorded. Most of what I said, what I said still stands, but I said it wrong. So I will, I will fix that in that episode when we okay. finally right. release it. But yeah, I, I, folks, I geek out like really deep, deep, deep it's in the weeds. Delightful. <laughs> so, all right. Any final thoughts? No, I think uh, it's, it's just a fun show that has a lot of, deeper stuff in it. It's, it's a still waters run deep kind of show. Yeah. It's also, I mean, one of the reasons we wanted to do like one of the ways that we kind of promoted the Lightbringers is that like, we both like dig deep into, uh, religious, philosophical, sociological, uh, logical, psychological, uh, analysis. And also we just drool over the beauty (laughs) Both are true. Both are true. Give me a man in some eyeliner and I am just happy. It's true. She's a a sucker for eyeliner. I'm a sucker for guy liner. All right. So next time, what Mm -hmm. are we talking about? So next time we are going to do a deep dive into the never ending story. The the movie from 1984. With Atreyu and the Luck Dragon. With Atreyu and the Lock Dragon, yes. I'm looking forward to that. Well, I'll see you then, Em. See you then. Thanks for listening. Our theme music is Professor Umlaut by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com. Find full music credits in the show notes. Until next time, remember, pop culture is still culture. And shouldn't you know what's in your head?